Daniel uh, chapter 7. Uh, before we get into the message today, uh, I don't know about you, but most years I'm looking forward to election day being over. Can I get a witness? Amen. I, getting, I get tired of the commercials. I get tired of rhetoric, uh, the normal carnage from politics. But if 2020 has taught us anything, it's proven that nothing is normal. And so I don't know what this week holds, uh, but uh, I'm just thankful that we can eventually uh, find some sort of normal once again. And so I want to urge you, first and foremost as believers, how we can respond is first and foremost pray. Uh, it's vital and important right now that we take time to pray. We need to pray for our nation, pray for our elections, pray that God would uh, allow the right people uh, in place and that we would be led by His Spirit to obey His Word. Prayer. That's our greatest commandment here in this regard. Secondly, I want to encourage you to vote. Uh, don't let your dislike for a person or uh, even a system to keep you from doing what men and women fought and died for to preserve for us as a right. And some of those are in this room today, and to, today we thank you. Next week we'll have a Veterans Day service where we'll honor those uh, tremendous men and women who have served in our, our country and their armed forces. Uh, but uh, just want to encourage you to take part of that. If you don't know what to do, uh, because you can listen to a lot of uh, nonsense uh, on, uh, on uh, just the news, we printed off a couple of things for you out here in the, in the foyer, and they're both nonpartisan, but this one is voting biblical values, some things that might help you as you look at the Word of God and what are some current issues today. That's a, that's a good one to look at. And the other one is a party platform. So it doesn't, all it does is quote from the platform so you know where they stand in regard to the biblical values uh, sheet that uh, we have printed off for you. Hopefully it'll be a little bit of advantage for you as you go to vote, uh, if you have not already. I know many people have already done that, 92 million as of this morning. But uh, thirdly, let me just say, let us be willing to offer grace. We're, gonna, we're in a great church, and God has made us different uh, in each of us, and there may be times where we different, differ politically, but let me just remind you, we're still called to love one another, to, to care for one another, and no matter what uh, uh, answers we receive regarding the elections, we, we need to remain focused on the real reason that we're here, and that's sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a Christian, I'm a Christian first, amen? And that's my calling, is to continue to perpetuate the gospel. So I want to do that, and so let's just keep our, our focus on that. So, uh, so let's pray that God will help us to re retain a spirit of unity, of love, and compassion for one another. And this is our primary mission as believers. Finally, I just want to invite you there is, we updated our, our, our uh, directory for 2020. So those are available on the, on the, uh, the uh, table as well. And they're not pictorial directories, they're just information, so you can have uh, phone, current phone numbers and addresses. So as we think about politics, though, Daniel chapter 7 is going to deal with something I think is pretty incredible, how God worked it all out. And I think it's appropriate that as we look at uh, voting this week, that we see one of the slickest politicians to ever grace the stage of the world is played out in history in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, last uh, two weeks ago, we dealt with three, uh, excuse me, four different beasts in Daniel's vision. And these different beasts we looked at uh, in uh, just very briefly. They were also synonymous with what we saw in Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel chapter 2. And so we just kind of did that a couple of weeks ago. But today we're going to look at the fourth beast a little closer. And this fourth beast is indescribable. Now the first one was a lion with some, uh, some wings. And the second one was uh, a bear. Uh, and then the third one was a leopard with four wings. And we see that those different beasts represent different uh, countries. 
and different Gentile nations that ruled through history. And even the last beast represents the Roman Empire, uh, which has ruled in the past and will do so in the future as well. And as we look here, I want to just pick up Daniel's narrative in Daniel chapter 7. We're going to read verses 7, 8, and the beginning of 9. And then we're going to step, step down to verse number 19 and 20. So if you'll join me in, the, in your Bible today, Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. He says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the, the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before uh, whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. And I beheld until the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit. Praise God. And verse number 19, let's pick up there. He says, Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron, and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet, and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before uh, whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. And so let's stop here and have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for Daniel's vision. Lord, I thank you for the interpretation you've shared with us. Uh, and I thank you, Lord, for the Word of God most of all. Lord, from Daniel, even all the way back to Genesis, to Revelation, Lord, as we come before you, we recognize that you have given your divinely inspired Word to us today, preserved for us in the English language, so that, Lord, we could be confident in the truths that you've laid out. And so, God, as we come to you this morning, we ask, Father, that you might help us, that you might guide us into all truth. And though this, uh, there, uh, there is uh, much matter to, to cover here, I pray that, Lord, our hearts would be stirred by the things that we hear Lord, not only to keep looking for your return, but also, God, that we would keep working. And so thank you for this great church, Lord, for this great opportunity and your great love. We praise you in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. So as we look here, we see uh, in Daniel chapter 7, he shares these four beasts, as I mentioned before, and, and he begins to go into detail about this fourth beast. And he does, really, the interpretation that he receives, starting in verse 15, is from God, and he gives us this interpretation. And as he do, does so, it's, it's important that God focuses his attention on this fourth beast. And as he does so, we see this raging beast that's demonstrated here. And, and these are some graphic illustrations of perhaps what it might have looked like. We're not really sure, but, but we do know it has some characteristics, and we'll talk about through that today. But we've seen this beast has ten horns, and these ten horns represent the ten-nation confederacy that arise out of the revived Roman Empire. Remember, two weeks ago as we were talking about this fourth beast, we, we recognized that it represented not only the old Holy Roman Empire, but also the coming Roman Empire that would be revived. And because we see that there were never ten, uh, ten uh, uh, kings, there was only the one. There was only one Caesar during that time. And so we see that this is still forthcoming. Also was pictured in Nebuchadnezzar too. But I want you to see the identity of the, the big little horn. Now notice I, I named this the big little horn, not the little big horn, because I didn't want to get confused uh, with George Custard there, although I love the story. 
But as we look at this, we see in, in the Bible that God is teaching us about one particular leader that will arise. Now, if we, we're going to look at the sister passage, so I want to invite you to put your hand in Revelation 13, and we'll get to that here in a moment. But we want to answer this question, who is the Antichrist? Now, I, I threw some pictures on the screen for you to look at. Uh, it could be Donald Trump, right? No one says anything there. Oh, me, preacher, where are you going? It could be Joe Biden, if he can remember. I'm just kidding, just kidding. It could be the Pope. It could be Vladimir Putin. It could be someone else. We're not sure. The reality is one of the most popular indoor sports for theologians is to try to identify the Antichrist, and we don't know who it is. We can't definitively say this is the Antichrist. As a matter of fact, I, I would encourage you to go back to our podcast and listen to Dr. Steve Weigel preach a message about who is the Antichrist. Preached a, about an hour long about this very topic. And uh, you can look it back and, and just search his name on our, our podcast and find it. It was preached on March 5th. And so it was a great, uh, a great podcast I was able to just go back to and just remember uh, some of the things that he shared. But I remember sitting right over here as he began to preach about who is the Antichrist, and he was posing that question. And he was going through these different pictures and different names, and I'm squirming in my seat thinking, please don't tell me he's going to identify him. Because we don't know who he is. We speculate. Matter of fact, this is not a new sport for theologians. This is something we've gone to over and over. Matter of fact, for centuries, Christians have worried, who is the Antichrist? Uh, and, and matter of fact, um, most time what they do is they take the number 666 as marked in Revelation 16, 18, and we think the mark of the beast is 666. So what we do is we take the, the person's name that most of the time we just don't like them. And so we take their name and then we uh, then manipulate their name. Either we use it in Hebrew or Greek or Latin and try to use that name and finagle it in the alphabet some way, way to come up with a total of 666. And if that doesn't work, then finally what we do is we just cheat on the spelling until we land at 666. Anybody can be the Antichrist. You know, so, so that's what we do. We, we think it's fun. We think it's, oh, man, I know this is it. I feel sounds so intelligent. And to get up here and say, I don't know who the Antichrist is, you're like, oh, well, I'm done, and you turn off. But we don't know who he is exactly, but we know who he is by his character. But this is... Before, during the Protestant Reformation, there were some other things that had gone on. Uh, there's a couple of guys here in the 12th century, St. Bernard. Uh, he called Pope Anacletus the Antichrist, which is the guy pictured on the right here in black and white. And then in the 13th century, uh, there was uh, Frederick, Frederick II, who was a ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. He said Gregory IX was the Antichrist, which is the guy at the bottom of the picture. These weren't Protestants. These were Catholics who had fallen out of favor with the Pope at the time. But really, it's not just those, it's also others. I think about uh, John Calvin, William Tyndale, Zwingli, Luther. All these have said the Pope were the Antichrist. The name game doesn't blame, the blame game doesn't quit. Matter of fact, there is a revived conspiracy that John F. Kennedy is the Antichrist. You said, wait a second, the guy that died? Yeah, yeah, he didn't die, apparently. You have to go way deep into some of this stuff. It's really intriguing. I wouldn't, uh, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't suggest it. Or maybe Judas Iscariot was the Antichrist. There's all kinds of names, even some of the ones we pointed to on the screen. But it's irrelevant because we don't know who he is, but we don't know about him. And so from the time of Daniel, even to today, we, we see that God gives us some things about him. And that's what we're going to look at today. 
Let's look at his names first and foremost. Because throughout the scripture, there are many different names offered for the, the Antichrist. As a matter of fact, in our text, Daniel calls him the little horn. Daniel chapter 7 and verse number 8, we, uh, we see that that is mentioned. Uh, excuse me, verse, yeah, and verse number 8. But in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 23... He says, in the latter time their, uh, of their kingdom, when the transgressors are, full, are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and under, uh, understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And so he's called a king of fierce countenance. Notice that's also descriptive of his character. In Daniel chapter 9, he goes further and he, he calls him the prince that shall come. Daniel 9 and verse 26. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. But not for himself and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood unto the end of the war. Desolations are determined. So we see he's that prince that shall come. But in the New Testament, Christ uses another word, the abomination of desolation. Matthew 24, 15 says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. We'll, talk, we'll deal with this later in our message today, but we see that this is referring to the Antichrist as he stands there in the temple and he sets himself up as God and he calls him the abomination of desolation. Many names, many disguises are uh, attributed to, to Satan's uh, progeny here, but let me just say that his character is, will be known. Now, oftentimes we think of Satan, we think of maybe the Antichrist, we think of him as someone with a little devil horns, I remember Tom and Jerry taught me what the devil looked like. You know what I'm talking about? A guy in a red suit with a pitchfork. You know what, I'm, you know what I mean? Okay, y'all don't know what I mean. Do we need to have a Tom and Jerry uh, episode here this morning? All right, interact with me. Here we go. Let's wake up. But, but we just remember seeing pictures of, of, the, the dev, you know, of, of the devil on Tom and Jerry, and he has a red suit, little horns, and a pitchfork. Well, Satan does not look like that. Matter of fact, we'll look at his description here in a little bit, but I just want you to see a little bit about his character. And the very first thing we see is he's a charismatic leader. He is very compelling in his mannerisms. And, and Daniel chapter 7 and verse number 8, right at the end of the verse, we see that he said, In this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Again, verse number 20. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up from uh, and before from whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. Again, he's able to speak great things. In verse number uh, 25, and he says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High. And then, if you want to look with me in Revelation 13, as I mentioned a while ago, this is a sister chapter to Daniel 7. In verse number 5, he says, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. So again, we see literally that the Antichrist will be a man who is a great orator. He will be a man who is able to, to win friends and influence people, if you will. He will be a great, great uh, man. And then his greatness is also shared as he establishes a great image that everybody is required to worship. Revelation 13, 15, and he says, And he gave power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. 
So it's obvious that this man had great uh, power to speak. And he'll be able to stand in front of cameras and audiences of thousands or millions and move the masses to follow him. But he won't be just a tremendous speaker, but uh, I believe he's going to be a guy who's very attractive. He's going to be the, the man's man, but he's also going to be a, uh, someone that people are attracted to. Uh, and so Daniel 7.20 says that he not only spake very great things, but at the end of the verse he says, whose look was more stout than his fellows. So when he enters a room, literally, he will capture everyone's attention. He will have a, just a magneticism about him that draws people. Listen, politicians today have a little bit of that, but they don't command this level of respect. The Antichrist will be the master politician, if you will. He will have all of the attributes of all that ever lived rolled up into one man. And the term where it says that he had eyes in verse number, uh, chapter number 7 and verse 20 refers to his mental intellect and his cleverness. And he'll be able to solve problems at really superhuman wisdom. It's just an incredible thing that this man will be someone that will capture, deceive, and destroy all that are in his path. And notice when that little horn came up. In, in Daniel chapter 7 and verse number 8, that it says that uh, there were three of uh, the first horns plucked up by the roots. The Antichrist moves in and replaces three of the nations that, uh, that uh, formed this Roman uh, uh, union, and he maneuvers to become a head over them all. Listen, He's going to, his power will be seized through his cleverness. In Daniel chapter 11, he talks about this. And he says, And in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Basically, you combine all the malarkey you've ever heard from uh, all the political campaigns of your entire life, and you dump it into one guy, and you have the Antichrist. And he will be the master of them all. He'll be able to talk people into anything. But it's not just his speech, his appearance, his magneticism. He will also be a man who is a cultic leader. Matter of fact, he will consider himself religious, which is, I believe, how he will win the, the Israelites and others who will deem to be some sort of religious. He will win them over to himself through his, uh, his, through, uh, through his belief system. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25, it says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and to think of uh, to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the defining of time. His desire is to, is to take over for God, and really is to go to ask people to fall down and worship him. Revelation chapter 13 again spells this out for us. In verse number 8, he says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Listen, basically, he does everything in his power to rewrite the way the world should function. He will eliminate all moral laws to any society, and he will make things completely lawless. And, and, and I can't help but wonder in my own self, how in the world would anybody follow such a devious man? 
But I remind you that he's not just another man. He will be equipped by Satan to perform certain great miracles, great signs, and even wonders because Satan is a deceiver. That's why he doesn't stand here with a pitchfork and a tail and a red suit. Because you would be able to say, oh, well, there's Satan, avoid him. Instead, what we see is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 14, and no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Do you see this? How that Satan as the deceiver is trying to be like God. He is the one that will mimic, mimic the miracles of the disciples. Eventually, the Antichrist will even be resurrected from the dead. Did you catch that? At the three-and-a-half-year mark of the tribulation, he will be killed and raised from the dead by Satan, and then he will march into the, the temple. And I believe that they will allow him to go into the temple because they will count him as the Messiah because he resurrected from the dead. What a tragedy. Many will look at this great leader. And they'll say, listen, he brought peace to Israel. He, he united the world, and things seem to be so great. And he will say, uh, and, and really, those who reject the real Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, church, they will believe that this is the Messiah, and they will blindly follow this one that will deceive, destroy, and devour. Those who are saved during the tribulation will become the target and the enemies of this man. And you know, I, I just can't help but see some of that already in the world at, at work today. And so let me talk very quickly about the rise of the Antichrist. Because in our world, we see things that are beginning to set the stage for the Antichrist. And so this world is ripe for a leader who will come upon the scene and command the respect and the following of people. And not just an isolated group of people, but the masses as a whole. And so we see that he will literally step into this vacuum that we've created in our world today. And as we look at the increasing unrest in our streets, not just in America, but around the world... And as we see the coming, the possible coming famine as a result of the lockdown around the world, and, I, and you know, I think we're pretty blessed here in Missouri. We're blessed in America. I'm thankful for my nation. But not every country has, uh, is going to be as blessed as we are, and there will be widespread famine, I believe, as a result of all that we've, we've gone through with COVID-19. And as we see this, there's going to be a growing interesting uh, interest in a desire to, uh, for a global reset something that we could all come together and reset. You say, how in the world could this possibly happen? History teaches us an important lesson. The German treasury after World War I was at an all-time low. As a matter of fact, uh, the budget was unbalanced. Inflation was out of sight. In 1919, for example, the German mark was worth 25 cents. But within four years... It declined until it took 4 trillion marks in order to equal the buying power of $1. Did you catch that? The German middle class was essentially wiped out. All of its savings, its pension was gone. People were ready to listen to anyone that would help them feed their family, solve their problems, and absolve their bitterness. In Russia, Lenin said this, and I quote, The surest way to overthrow an existing social order is to debauch the currency. And as we look at what happened in Germany following uh, this point, 1920, 1930s, 
we see the rise of Hitler, Nazism, and, all the, uh, and fascism and things that would eventually lead to World War II. How could they follow? You know, I, I come back to this. In America, we, we've been so blessed, and I'm so thankful for our, our country. I'm thankful for how God has watched over us and protected us because righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And I, 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 I just can't help but think, though, that this stage is being set for someone to walk upon the stage and say, listen, folks, I have the answer to all the economic problems we're facing in this country. I know how to bring peace back to the streets and offer integrity into politics once again. Do you think that he would be accepted? Do you think a man like this would be welcomed on today's scene? I think so. And while this person hasn't yet appeared, the stage is set. I believe he may be alive today, maybe polishing his skills until the time is set for, uh, for him to appear on the global scale. And, but the, but the, this is what the Bible teaches, that his spirit is already here. Look at 1 John 4, 3. And every spirit that confesseth, confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit, that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come. And even now already is it in the world. As John, the, prophet, the apostle John wrote this, he was writing in the first century. Here we are 19 centuries later, and when we still realize that that, uh, that spirit is in the world today. But there's another warning in 1 John 2, 18. He says, little children, it is the last time, and ye have heard that the Antichrist shall come. And even now are there many Antichrists whereby... We know that it is the last time. The spirit of Antichrist is everywhere in the world. False messiahs are on every horizon. And although there are only a few references to the Antichrist in Daniel, his prophecies are the forerunners of Revelation. And Revelation helps to interpret what Daniel has written in Daniel 7. And so as we look at this, though, we see that, there, uh, that the Antichrist is going to have a reign of terror. And Revelation 13 describes the battle strategy for him. So as we look at this, let me just remind you that the Antichrist is Satan's masterpiece. He's going to pour into him everything. He's going to, that all of Satan's desire will be wrapped up in one person and all that he ever longed for will be played out in his ministry. Remember, what he's wanted to do since, since the very beginning uh, of time is Satan has desired to sit on the throne of the Most High. And so he's doing everything he can to destroy not only our world, but God's plan. And so Daniel and Revelation, though they're separated by six centuries, these two men are given the same prophecies. Look in Revelation 13 and verse number 1 and see the similarities that we find in Daniel 7. He says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. The sea refers to the masses of people. The Antichrist begins his ministry behind the scenes. He, he is finally brought into center stage and, and the time when the times will be tumultuous and there will be both political and turmoil and a lack of leadership. And so that's when the Antichrist will make his move. But we see also that 
there will be, he will be resurrected. I mentioned this before. Revelation 13 and verse number 3 speaks of this. It says, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Quite honestly, at this point, everyone will be required to worship this Antichrist. The exception, the only exception, will be those who put their faith in Christ. Only true believers, ones that have called out and asked Christ to save them from their sin, they will not receive the mark of the beast. They will not bow the knee. They will be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who will stand up boldly and say, not, not me and not my family. We will not bow to this false god because all he is doing is mimicking Jesus, the real Savior. This will be an incredible feat of bravery for these believers to stand in the midst of the tribulation and say, we won't take this mark. Because by the mark, we realize and, and, and read that without the mark, they cannot eat, and they cannot do, uh, do commerce. There's all kinds of things that they won't be able to do. And man, if you want in, into some conspiracy series, just, just Google Mark of the Beast today. You'll find all kinds of good stuff. I don't, I don't advise it. We really, I'll be honest, have no concept of how, what the horrors will be like during the time of the tribulation. It will be terrible for believers and for the world. Because once the Antichrist has brought together the, uh, these three nations, once he has put together this European confederacy, confederacy, he's taken control, he will overpower all that remains, and then he will uh, do uh, bring uh, desolation to the world. But how will he take care of Israel? How will he take care of those religious zealots? And that's where the peace treaty comes in. He will sign a peace treaty with Israel, which begins the tribulation itself, a peace treaty for seven years. And then that seven years, we see that uh, he uh, will say, listen, you can build your temple. You can worship how you want to worship. But in three and a half years, he breaks that promise and sets himself up as the one to worship. This will be the beginning of his absolute control. Politics, religion, economics, he will set himself up. You know, we, we think about all this and, and you say, man, this is a terrible message, Pastor. And I'll say, amen and amen. There's not much hope when we think about the Antichrist until we read the back of the book. I want you to look in your Bible. It'll be on the screen, but if you have your Bible, look in your Bible to Revelation chapter 19, verses 19 and 20. I want you to mark this. I want you to see what God has in store for this uh, wicked, wicked man and all that follow him. In Revelation 19, verses 19 and 20, he says, And I saw the beast. Who's he referring to? The beast is synonymous with the Antichrist. And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. You're going to come, come against war against Jesus Christ and all that follow him. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. Listen, both... These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Let me just say it like this. We're on the winning side. Amen. 
If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I've cast my lot with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I have nothing to fear because though we may, in, uh, the darkness may come for a season, there's light in the morning. And I praise God for that glorious light. I praise God for the hope that he brings with his resurrection, brings our hope for eternity. And church, let me just remind you that, we've, that God has called us to, to be on that winning side. And God has reminded us, even when we look at something as bleak and dire as the, the coming of the Antichrist, that we can have hope through all of this. And as a believer, the Bible teaches that there is what we call a pre-tribulation rapture. And so as a believer, I won't be here during the tribulation when the Antichrist comes to do his dirty work. And so just let me just make that very clear this morning that the Bible is, is, it teaches very plainly in Revelation, uh, following Revelation 4, the church is never again mission, mentioned in Scripture because we do not enter into the tribulation. We are not part of that. We will be in heaven with our Lord and Savior. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And he says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And so there is comfort there. There is encouragement today. As a believer, I'm confident in all that God has played out. And as Daniel wrote this, it, the Bible says in verse number 15, he says, he was grieved in his spirit in the midst of my body. He says, listen, this was an excruciating thing I had to watch and to live through. But he said that there is hope in the midst of all of this because the ancient of days will sit upon the throne. He's the one that's going to knock down those thrones. He's going to one that's going to take out the beast. He's the one that will come and live uh, on this earth. Jesus Christ will live on this earth for a thousand years and rule and reign, and we will experience a time of incredible peace with our Savior. But what is our response? You know, honestly, you can say, Pastor, that's good information. Thank you. Appreciate that. Good Sunday service. Thank you. But what is our response? We may feel morose, or maybe we feel like this is doomsday coming upon us. But our response is not that of doom and gloom. I'm not an Eeyore. I'm not looking around and, and trying to guess who the, and where the Antichrist is, whether he's alive or not. All I care about is what God told me to do in the light of the coming Savior. And the very first thing he tells us is, occupy till I come. Luke chapter 19 and verse number 13, Jesus Christ is, is uh, giving a parable about ten servants. And as he does so, he says that he, he delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy until I come. And it, throughout the story, I don't have time to exegete the entire passage for you, but I will tell you that Christ is relating to us the importance of working faithfully as his servants while we're on this earth. He's saying, listen, though, it, though uh, Jesus Christ is coming and though his, his return is soon, let me just say that God has called us to occupy. Occupy does not mean that we draw back, but to push forward. Occupy doesn't mean we just sit in a pew, but instead we get up and we share the good news of the gospel. Well, let me just say, we have not just good news, but the greatest news the world needs to hear. Better than a cure for cancer, better for, than a cure for AIDS, better than a cure for coronavirus, we have the gospel of Jesus. Jesus Christ, which not only saves people for a short time, but saves us for eternity. Do you catch that? You see, this is not just a, a, just, oh man, that's good news. You know, my mom, she went into remission from cancer. I said, mom, that's great news. That is, but the news of Jesus Christ is even greater. 
And so let me just tell you that God has called us Occupy. What does that mean? We continue to share the gospel. Occupy. What does that mean? We continue to send out missionaries. Occupy means we continue as Christians to, to love one another and to love the lost world and continue to work uh, toward seeing churches established and the gospel of God go forward from this place and encouraging other churches and other places because God is not done with us yet. Occupy till I come. But the second thing he says is keep watch. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 13 says, Watch therefore, for you, know, uh, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. You see, the reality is we're to keep one eye, uh, our hands on the field, working, laboring for the Master, and the other one is going to be looking in the sky, and I'm looking for His return. We're to be living in expectation of His soon return. Do you expect Him to return? You ever wonder why God doesn't tell us when he's coming back? I remember as a kid, Dad would give me chores. And I know I've shared this, but I'm going to say it again because I, it just bears repeating. And as my dad would come home every day between 5 and 5.15, and I knew I had to have my chores done before Dad got home. But I knew when to expect him. And so what would I do? I would play until, I knew, until 4.50. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get my chores done and then have, you know, and try to find something else to occupy my time. Instead, what I would do is I would play. I would go play in the creek. I'd go to the neighbor's house. I'd go do whatever I could do, and I would avoid the chores as long as possible because I knew I had till 4.50. You know why God doesn't tell us? Because we would all waste time. We would be like, we're going to do whatever we want to do because we know that on January 2021, Christ will return. I don't know that that's when that's coming, and I'm not speaking saying dates, okay? And if anybody sets a date, date or anything like that, I would just say walk away from that heretic. But in the 1970s, there was a big emphasis on the return of Christ, and many people didn't plan for retirement. They thought it was useless to work. They, thought they, they said, I'm not buying youth life insurance, and I'm not making plans for the future because Christ is coming. To occupy doesn't mean that you neglect these things. To occupy means you're walk, watching, you're waiting, you're expecting that return. There is an expectation that Christ will return, and I want, to find, I want him to find me faithful here on this earth. So that when I enter into the, the presence of the Lord, he will look at me and say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So that's our response. Christian, today God is saying, will you occupy? Will you be busy about the work of God? Well, honestly, the tendency right now is to draw back. There's uncertainty about Tuesday. There's uncertainty about 2021. There's uncertainty about all that's going to go on. And let me just say that God is not calling us to draw back, but walk by faith and not by sight, and to continue with the gospel and say, God, I want to, I want to follow you. I want to just surrender my life to you. Lord, I want to do the greatest things that I can do for you in 2021 than I've ever done before. But maybe you're not saved. Maybe you don't have any assurance today whether when you breathe your last, whether you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. But the reality is you will spend eternity in one of two places. There's no purgatory. The Bible doesn't teach that. It was a false doctrine uh, introduced by the Catholic Church. But the Bible does teach there's a heaven and there's a hell. And each of us will live forever one place or another. 
And God offers you the opportunity to spend eternity in heaven. You see, He loves you. He loves you so much that the Bible said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, God loves you. And knowing that God loves us, He had a desire to remove the punishment and the penalty of sin. We can't do it on our own. The Bible says uh, in Romans 3, 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's no way for me to possibly atone for my own sins. You see, because I would have to die and spend eternity in hell before I would ever have atoned enough for my own sins. It is impossible then for me to ever get to heaven in my own merit, in my own abilities, in my own, uh, in my own strengths. And so therefore God says, uh, But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 10, 9, he shares with us, listen, this is a gift, and he offers it to you today. Salvation, the ability to be able to skip the tribulation, the, the opportunity to spend eternity in heaven with our wonderful Savior is made available to you, and that's found in Romans chapter 10 and verse number 9. He says, this gift can be yours. He says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Many people say, well, Pastor, I already believe in God. I'm good. Pastor, you don't understand. I've already asked for forgiveness multiple times. You see, the reality is Romans 10 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, you must believe who he is. He is the eternal Son of God, not just some uh, guy that came on the scene and became God somewhere along the way and then, uh, and then uh, you know, died for us. You know, no, he, that, that is not at all the truth of the Scripture. The Bible says that he is eternally God in eternity past, Present and eternity future, He is always God. You must believe at who He is. You must believe that He died on the cross to save you and me from your sin. You must believe that He uh, rose again from the dead. And, and, that, and then today you must believe that if you will call upon Him, thou shalt be saved. Simple as that. And God says, I've made this available to you. 